Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the silky smooth sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I am your co-host, Scott Parkin, in Berkeley, California. And as always, I am joined by uh, Bob Bazenko in Houston, Texas. And uh, please share, subscribe, rate, and review. A couple quick things before we get started. On Monday, March 28th, I debated James D. Eugenio, who was Oliver Stone's writer on uh, the recent documentary, JFK Revisited. And Scott and I have had a lot to say about that. So make sure you look it up. Uh, we should have it here on Green and Red as well. But it's uh, Noam Chomsky's Useful Idiot, which is what he called me, versus Oliver Stone's writer. But thank you for Eugenio. To a tie, and I'm sure it'll be very calm and quiet and, you know, yeah. silent. There'll be no hand waving. No, like, no. There'll be none it's of a, this. And it's, hey. a good thing we're not, it's a good thing we're not in the same room or it could get, like, really vociferous. And uh, in addition to that, check out the Green and Red Medium page because Scott and I are starting something new. It's an idea that others have used, including people like I.F. Stone and Emmanuel Wallerstein. And now, if you follow him, Adam, too, is we're going to start putting out commentaries on an intermittent basis, which are going to be shorter pieces than we do on our blog or than we do in the podcast. Just kind of our thoughts on something that's kind of going on at the particular time. So start looking soon. We will obviously put notice out when we do it, but start looking soon for green and red commentaries. The green and red media empire is getting like damn big. And I think Murdoch is starting to get a little, little worried. The Murdochs, they're starting to look over their shoulders at us. So. Yeah. And if you want to support that media empire, go to our webpage, our new and improved website at greenredpodcast.org and hit the support button or go to our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast. Uh, today- Wait, It's not silkysmooth.com? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, it's it not should silkysmooth.com. Lou Rawls already had that. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> right. And so today we're going to be talking with Daniel McGowan, uh, who is joining us in from uh, New York today. Welcome to Green Red, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. And I'm going to get a little bit into what we're talking about today. So, you know, the 80s, 90s, 2000s, all period of growth in like radical environmental and animal rights movements. It was a period marked with an anti-capitalist politic around corporations that were destroying the earth, people, animals. Uh, it also saw an escalating, uh, it saw, also saw escalating tactics, included property destruction and arson. Uh, government and industry worked to crack down on those radical movements. The FBI actually had an operation that they called uh, Operation Backfire. Um, in today's environment, no pun intended, we're also seeing uh, government and industry repression of movements coming out of, you know, for the last 10 years around Occupy Wall Street, the Ferguson uprisings, which has morphed into a larger movement for Black Lives, Standing Rock, which included last year's fight against the Line 3 pipeline and northern Minnesota and various anti-Trump movements. Um, uh, and we've actually had a number of episodes on radical movements and repressions of organizers and activists, most notably our, our friend Jay Conroy, who was one of the Shack Seven who's joined us. Uh, we've also talked twice with folks who work with the Free Jessica Reznicek team. And we'll probably talk a little bit about Jessica's case as well. But, you know, currently uh, Jessica Reznicek at Dapple a saboteur of the Dakota Access Pipeline is serving seven years for nonviolent sabotage actions against that pipeline, and her, but her sentence included a terrorism enhancement, which is another thing we'll probably be talking about. So to be joining us today, we're going to be joined by Daniel McGowan, 
Uh, Daniel is an environmental and social justice activist from Queens, New York. He was part of two Earth Liberation Front actions in 2001 and was arrested as part of Operation Backfire. Uh, he was charged in 2005 with 15 counts of arson, property destruction, and conspiracy related to those two actions. Uh, and then in June 2007, uh, Daniel was sentenced to seven years in federal prison and ordered to pay almost $2 million in restitution. And then the uh, other thing that we want to discuss, but which is actually an important part of the story, is that Daniel served part of his time in a secret, a super secret prison unit called a Communication Management Unit, or CMU. We actually uh, did a show last fall also on Daniel Hale, who is actually being currently held in the CMU. So obviously here on Green and Red, we are very interested in discussing state repression and then also the what's happening with political prisoners, people who are resisting the state. Um, and so Daniel, I, I think maybe the, the first thing we'd like to kind of get into, since we'll have a little bit more of a long form conversation today, is maybe start off with telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, tell us about your backstory, how you got involved with environmental work. Um, just like kind of, let's just briefly kind of talk about that to kind of kick off. Sure. Start from the beginning, right? Um, so, uh, you know, I grew up in Queens, New York, like sort of in this little uh, peninsula called Rockaway. Um, it's just like a little peninsula that juts out into the, the bay and the ocean. Um, it's in the southern part of Queens, sort of working class neighborhood. I, I don't come from a, a very political family, or I should say, a, you know, a left family. A family, if they're, you know, political, they're, they're more like conservative. Uh, my father was uh, an NYPD transit cop. My mom worked at McDonald's for most of my, most of my life. And was then like a New York City like lunch lady uh, for middle school, um, and so yeah, I didn't really get much politics from from home. Or I mean, the politics I got were not you know it wasn't great. Basically, I grew up in the '80s. Crack was huge where I grew up. The drug war was was popping. I I just like learned a lot about like you know good people and bad people and drugs and all this like system nonsense. Unfortunately. Um, and I didn't really have much of any kind of like environmental upbringing. Um, I mean, my parents were really great about encouraging me to educate myself, to be good in school, to learn about um, things I cared about and be serious about that, but also, you know, a love for animals. My mom in particular was a huge animal lover. And it's, you know, in the context of, you know, uh, we eat this animal, we pet this animal, obviously, but, you know, uh, you know, growing up in a house like that, where it was, you know, important to be, you know, kind to animals was probably a, a pretty instrumental thing in terms of uh, then getting politicized later. Um, I had no camping background. We didn't go to national parks. We had nothing like nothing going on like that. But I did grow up in a, a pretty polluted area. And as a teenager, I remember thinking how strange it was that, you know, uh, I lived essentially on the flight path of the Concord. And how the Concord would drop fuel. And I never felt that, but clearly the fuel was dropped in our neighborhood. And it always got me thinking, like, how come that doesn't happen other places? And how come we had, you know, I, I lived in the, the 80s when we had uh, algae outbreaks, uh, you know, the, the red or green slime that would close the beach. I was a, like a pretty avid boogie boarder and wannabe surfer and skateboarder. And, you know, there'd be times that we just couldn't really go there. We get kicked off the beach. I was also there when the me medical waste was washing up in, in um, the 80s. And that was really a result of 
um, hospitals illegally dumping their hazardous waste further down the peninsula. And so it really impressed upon me like, oh, wow, like somebody can do this here and then it's going to go downstream, like literally metaphorically and, and really go downstream. And that, you know, ruined like my 10 year old summer, basically, because my mother was like, in sense that I would even think about going in the water because there's hypodermic needles. And this is also 1984, 85, we're talking about like the height of like, you know, AIDS, like uh, paranoia coupled with a, you know, a refusal on the part of Reagan to do anything about AIDS, to even talk about it. It was still three years away from even mentioning um, HIV or AIDS. And, you know, it was the time where it was just pushed on like, you know, as like a homophobic thing, like, oh, that's a gay disease or it doesn't affect us or it's people dying elsewhere. Right. So, you know, the constant, the idea that I would go to the beach with needles in the water was just anathema to my mother. Um, so yeah, that was, you know, my background. Um, I got, I went to high school as a normal, whatever normal means, but I was a, your average kid being concerned about, you know, baseball, comic books, chasing teenage girls and you know uh just being i used to run track i did a lot of stuff like that got to college and i really wanted to get involved i, I had you know it was like these moments where when i was growing up i would see i was very much impressed by what greenpeace was doing uh back in the early days not not, not currently or in the last 30 years but um you know when they used to get in the way of uh of whaling, right? And these images that were burnt into my into my skull of, um, you know, like the early Greenpeace missions and putting themselves in the way of um, of whaling. And um, you know, but at the time, even as late as college, I I didn't really. I think I was my life was very small and parochial, and really, I went to school in the same state that I grew up in. But it was very, it was pretty much as far away you can get in New York State. I went to school in Buffalo. It's like 400 miles from New York City. It might as well be 400 million miles. Um, and then, you know, obviously that process opened up my mind and I wanted so bad to, to find some outlet for environmental activism. It turned out that there really wasn't anything. I mean, they had these Earth Day fairs where they'd say, like there'd be a bunch of hippies hacky sacking and it wasn't really interesting to me. Uh, I, I that was, got that was my college experience too. Oh, was it? I mean, it seems to be a very common thing, right? Like you go to, I remember going to this Earth Day Fair and just being like, and this was before the corporations really took it over, you know, like in New York City, Earth Day is like held in Grand Central Station and it's sponsored by Con Ed. That's our like local horrible polluter, you know, monopoly, electricity, coal burner. Um, and, but before that, it was just like, kind of, you know, after the initial Earth Day, it just went into this kind of like flatline and it was just like, people selling like pipes and like hacky socks and like one person getting signatures for a petition. I remember thinking this is so tepid and just so whatever. I, mean, I don't know. So I got politicized mostly because at the time the governor of New York, Pataki, was cutting the budget. And, you know, I mean, I got involved through self-interest. I mean, it like literally affected me because I was like on student loans and I was like, I'm not going to be able to go to college anymore. And I was already having hard enough time, like budgeting, you know, like I'm a kid, I'm not really f financially savvy in any way. There's never a lot of money around to like even have that be an issue. And then suddenly I have a student loan check. So I got involved. I started going to Albany lobbying. Um, I got involved in the student uh, Senate of some kind. And, you know, it was, it was interesting, but kind of my first really experience with that sort of stuff and like dealing with these 22 year olds, 21 year olds that were like, 
pretty much like politicians in waiting. I mean, they were politicians in school. And like, to be honest, some of them, I can't imagine where they are now, but I imagine, I guess it's like Wall Street or, you know, whatever, doing horrible things, I'm sure. Um, so I got involved that way. And then, you know, I just couldn't find an outlet for that. Um, after I graduated, I, I took a trip to Thailand. I intended to study at a university there in uh, the study abroad office completely messed up my paperwork, but I went there on a student visa, took a few classes anyway, and spent a bunch of months uh, traveling the country. And I was in a city called Kachanaburi. It's actually where the River Kwai is, you know, like the famous movie and the, the POW camp. And I met a guy, his name is Tyler. I always want to look him up, but he worked for a group called Earth Rights International. And they were doing, they were like a group that was hard for me to understand because they were doing environmental and human rights. And they were concerned with Myanmar, which was just Myanmar for a few years at that point. Um, the, the army of Burma took over, renamed the country. Their name of their group was like SLORC. It's like state law and order ruling committee, something absolutely fascist. And they were liquidating uh, the old growth forest of Myanmar. And also, uh, really shitting on and oppressing the hill tribes of, of Myanmar, of Burma. And um, it was interesting to me because I had not really seen this like confluence of, of social and environmental stuff. And it really, it appealed to me because I was like, wow, that's fascinating. They're not just going in there saying like, don't cut big trees and, you know, this ancient forest, they're going in and talking about the impact on the indigenous people of Myanmar. Um, so it was it inspired me when I got home to seek out you know, something to find something. I didn't know. I mean, like, it's hard for me to overstate how like small my world was. I grew up in like, basically just like the back, backward, like bumfuck Queens, you know, like Rockaway people like will always say that's New York. Like, I'm like, I know it's like this weird peninsula with just like not a lot going on. People have an island mentality there. They're like, oh, I'm not leaving the peninsula. Like that's said so often. And I would like desperately like was like, I wanted, I knew there was something else out there. I didn't, and you know, I couldn't, there was no punk scene. The metalheads were, were a-holes and like, you know, just a bunch of bullies. And there was no alternative. I just couldn't find it. I had to literally go to Buffalo and then go to Thailand to come home and, and really see that. Like there was a way out of this living in Rockaway, doing, doing the Rockaway thing. Um, how did you, how did you end up in the Northwest? Uh, there's a, I'll get, to, I'll get to that, but there's a, 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 another thing. So, so what happens is I get back, I, uh, am just, I go to, I go to, I'm supposed to meet a friend at a club. It's on Avenue B and third street had like no name, whatever. It was just like, I didn't have money for the cover. I left needed to use the bathroom and I went into blackout books, which was like a small info shop on 50 Avenue B. Um, and I, you know, I wasn't always an avid reader and I was like looking at the shelves going, what the fuck is this? What is like libertarian? What, what anarchy? Like I had no idea. I was like, what did I stagger into? And I didn't have a lot of money on me at the time. So I went to the, this new concept. They had a free pile, you know, just a free bin. And I grabbed a copy of the Earth First Journal and I used the bathroom and I pieced out and went home. And I was looking at the Earth First Journal and it was incomprehensible to me. There was a man on the cover in like fatigues. <laughs> like he was called a Freddy and I was like what's what is this like and I kept looking for like a glossary and no idea no framework it was super exciting and I went to the directory and I found out that they actually had a group in New York City uh, based out of a club uh, a bar 
in the, on the west side of Manhattan in Tribeca called Wet, Wetlands Preserve. And Sounds like some of the founders of Earth First I know. So yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. And I went there and I showed up at this meeting and they had a they had a thing they called the Eco Salon. So it was like, oh no, I'm sorry, it was salon, saloon, saloon. Sorry, because it was like the concept is you'd be drinking a beer and and listen to like what was going on. And each each Tuesday night they had like a different topic. I showed up on like the animal rights night and like I, I literally show up and. Again, people are talking, this shit they're saying is so incomprehensible to me. They're like, well, Captain Paul Watson is stuck in Denmark and he's going to get, and I'm who, Captain who, military. Like, what, what are you talking about? Like, and it was just, you know, the founder of Sea Shepherd was, was being held by the Netherlands and he was under danger of being extradited to Iceland for, you know, sinking of a ship or some kind of, you know, so-called crime in their mind. And uh, I was fascinated. And so I just, I just jumped into this world. I just was fully immersed for like two years. I got arrested like a million times at protest. We did uh, campaigns with, with Rainforest Action Network and uh, like Home Depot, Mitsubishi. And I basically got involved in the Animal Defense League, uh, which was doing anti-fur campaigns. Um, did a few little actions on my own, little slingshot stuff, um, just putting my foot in the, in the pond, so to speak. And, um, and then I decided, uh, you know, I got, I was, working at a mainstream environmental NGO. It was my politics I've radicalized very fast, but it was, it was sort of like, I was ready. It was like 23. I was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to California and I'm going to go to Northern California and try to save the redwoods. I had went to a, uh, a gathering that Rainforest Action Network had back in the day. I can't remember the name of it, but it was in Occidental California. And I met a bunch of people that just came back from that campaign. It was called Chautauqua. It was like their gathering they used to have, right? Yeah. There used to be rainforest action groups or RADs. Yeah, RAD, they were basically right. like That's they were right. basically like chapters. Yeah. And then the Chautauqua mm-hmm. would be where they would um exactly have an annual gathering. Yeah. We were we like one of the one of the the meetings that we had at Wetlands was the rainforest action thing. And so it was the RAG that was doing I mean, we campaigned at Nobody Beats the Wiz and Mitsubishi. I mean, it was it was pretty amazing. Uh and so, yeah, I went, I met people at this Chautauqua and I was like, I got to get out of New York. I had exhausted what I wanted to do there in terms of activism. And I decided I want to go to Humboldt County to save the Redwoods with um, Earth First, basically Humboldt County Earth First. And I was like one week away from going and the news came down that the, a logger had killed uh, David Gypsy Chain, had fallen a tree right on him. And that was literally where I was going. Uh, I had a Amtrak ticket that I had saved up to. It was like, it was like an economy. <laughs> I would never travel like this now. It was like an economy, non-sleeper, four-day Amtrak trip. And I bought, I had, I remember I had a the Howard Zinn reader. I didn't have, I mean, this is pre-cell phone. I didn't have, you know, obviously it's a long time ago. And I had like one book. That was what I had for the whole trip. And I was thinking, this makes sense. And I show, you know, they tell me like, don't come. The campaign's over. I show up in northern california i mean in san francisco and i'm just like what the fuck am i supposed to do now you know um so yeah i got i got involved uh i i had some really really random encounters with people and ended up getting involved in uh this group that was politically pie throwing like i got involved in the biotic bacon brigade i ended up pieing the president of the sierra club and the president of the 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 director of novartis at UC Berkeley, when they did, just signed a deal, I got very involved with like the anti-GMO campaigns there. Um, and eventually, you know, I was, I had some friends that I, I met in, again, pretty random ways. And we decided we were going to 
do a bunch of uh, anti-GMO crop actions. And so I spent, I, mean, I was like on pre-trial release for this like pieing thing and it was like considered an assault for some reason and I was like going around to the central valley with a bunch of people and essentially just destroying these GMO test plots in like Davis and Sacramento and northern California. How did you end up further north um, of northern California? Sure so my case got adjudicated I got smacked on the wrist I had like a political lawyer that was like super helpful we had done a lot of these uh, actions but like I kind of felt like a, you know I had a few close calls and my research capability of figuring out where these plots were, because they were all very secretive, was, was pretty much at maxed. And uh, it was about six or seven months before the World Trade Organization protest in Seattle. And I had a bunch of people going there. I mean, again, it's like one of those things that every single person I knew was on the West Coast was going to Seattle for this protest. And I showed up in the summer, the summer before and uh, met up with a bunch of local anarchists and friends that I had some of the people I was doing these actions with. And uh, we started squatting these empty buildings in, in Seattle, getting ready for, for that. Um, I, I was involved in the protest. I was uh, you know, involved in the black block part of the protest. We had two people get arrested. Um, so I stuck around Seattle for a couple of weeks because um, we got attacked by undercover cops and people were accused of fighting back and cops got punched. And so these people were charged with assault. And at the end of it, uh, I was kind of like at this point where I could have gone to Nia Bay to um, join Sea uh, Defense Alliance and, you know, Jake and Josh Harper and Jonathan Paul, who ended up being my co-defendant um, and my an old roommate of mine were involved there. Or I could have gone to Eugene to get involved with the Earth First Journal and also meet up with some of the people that I was hanging out in Seattle, who I had a feeling were interested in bringing me in to something, you know, more than what I was doing. And so I, I went with the second choice and I ended up moving to Eugene and I was a short-term editor at the Earth First Journal. But then really I had contacts that I had made in Seattle that ended up being basically ELF people. So I moved and, to and Eugene. Say, say what ELF is. What's oh, I'm sorry. ELF stands for Earth Liberation Front, uh, sort of I guess more of an idea or a name that people use with actions than uh, like, I would guess you would, could consider it a decentralized network of different groups or cells that did not communicate with each other and had complete autonomy. Um, I, I suppose it's the idea that anyone could use that name as long as they're like abided by some pretty basic, uh, you know, I would say leftist or life preserving principles. Um, so, at the time, there had been a series of ELF actions around the country, most of them centered in, in the West and the Northwest. And uh, I was sort of invited to, to uh, I, I can't remember the exact series, but I met up, you know, was brought into this group with some of the other folks that I was, that I ran with in Seattle. And we sort of were, you know, living, people were living in different cities. And at that point, we commenced to basically take in more actions. And so I was brought into group and um i mean there's a lot to say there so you know if you have questions or you can focus me that would be great so you know you get involved with a group that's part of the earth liberation front which leads up to some elf actions that you participate in 2001 could you kind of just like briefly tell us a little bit about what leads up to what happens in 2001 sure well you know it, it truly was a decentralized group um, no matter what, you know, the government 
or whomever would assume or say. Um, and so, you know, actions came about in interesting ways. Sometimes it was the strength of the personality of, of somebody pushing for particular things to be addressed. Um, I was definitely, um, I had engaged in a lot of sabotage actions at that point, I don't know, 20 or something like that, uh, maybe 15. But, um, you know, I, I had, I think what one thing that happens like psychologically is uh, people can sometimes get on a little bit of a treadmill in terms of like, you put a lot of time and energy into something and then it doesn't, nothing really changes. And so there is a tendency to ratchet up tactics as opposed to stepping back and looking at strategy it's the it's the downfall of sort of getting really insular and i want to say radical but tactically focused right so i i had you know looked at like okay so how much can my hands do in this certain amount of time like how hard is it to cut down gmo crops right like that is just a slow process even with tools right and so i think that at that point i was sort of interested in you know using fire using arson i mean arson is the crime the, the actual legal term but using fire to destroy things um is you know to destroy property, not to destroy people, not to, to harm anyone, realizing that it's it's a dangerous proposition and risky, but also seeing, you know, um, having seen actions that, that took place in which like a place could literally be reduced to, to rubble in one night. Um, there were some early EOF actions that I found were instructive uh, on this level. And there was a, a arson of a horse slaughtering plant in Oregon that never was rebuilt after that. And so that was very like, that fed that idea, like, well, you can actually stop these places if you try hard enough. Um, I realized that that's potentially a little intellectually lazy, lazy, but at the time that was where my brain was going. Um, as well as, you know, really bold actions. I got an intense amount of media and and hopefully a deterrent effect like Veil, like the arson of Veil, which was essentially uh, all legal efforts had failed. And the expansion of the Vail Ski Resort was going to happen. It was presumed that there was Canadian links there. No one actually knew, but it seems now years later there, there was because they're finding, you know, scat of Canadian links. Um, but, you know, it, that one was always felt to me as an outsider as a bit of a, a bit of a fuck you, right? But these actions were interesting to me. And I thought like what we can, what people can do in uh, six months could be done in one night. And so... I had uh, the issues that were important to me was sort of genetic genetic modification, g- genetic engineering, and old growth forests. I mean, I moved out west to protect old growth forests. We don't have a lot of them on the east coast, so very few, if any. Um, and so, you know, when I came to Oregon and California and Washington, I was blown away by by what it was like, and I, you know, truly had a cathartic moment where I was like, I want to do what I can to, to save this shred, this 4% that we have or whatever the horrible number is. Quick, quick question. When you're talking about some of the sabotage actions you did before leading up to 2001, um, where the targets, you know, they were, they were private property, they were corporate targets. And uh, is there anything GMO crops, but were there other sabotage actions as well besides targeting? Yeah. I mean, most most of them had to do with genetic engineering and they were like they were crops i mean you know it's been so long but i would say like i have like slingshotted first door windows and there is a business in new york city that sold um just a really grotesque kind of curio shop that that sold animal bones and ridiculous things like that the man actually went to prison for trading in an exotic or uh, endangered animal body parts uh which 
It's fucking grotesque. Um, yeah, but most most mostly it was mostly it was crops, you know, um, and and then everything that took place in Seattle, which was essentially just destroying um, the windows belonging to these multinational corporations. Um, we were very clear that like, no one was trying to trying to harm a mom and pop or some small business. We were looking for maximum like symbolic and media effect, you know. Um, and so the co- names of the companies that were growing the crops are all the, you know, the famous people you might expect, Decal, Plant Genetics, Monsanto, groups like that, you know, that were all uh, Avantis, you know, just, just organiz- uh, I keep calling them organizations, businesses that were involved in mainstream and genetic engineered crops, basically. So um, I, like I said, I really wanted to work on old growth forest. I uh, wanted to find uh, you know, we, the one I ended up being involved in was called Superior Lumber. Uh, they were a garden variety company for the most part, family owned uh, by w- this one family. And, uh, you know, the reason I took issue with them was they were logging oak growth forest. They were, they were logging hard to find spots because, you know, it's the same thing with oil. As oil becomes harder to find, you know, there's, there's some oil, but it's like hard to find or it's expensive. It's the same thing with any commodity, I believe. And so with with old growth trees, you have these ones on the top of mountains that are just like financially not feasible for, you know, they're there and the companies know they're there, but they're like, eh, it costs too much money to get them. So it's like they're, they're scraping the bottom of the barrel. Like we've seen that fighting coal. Yeah. It's, they totally. go from like coal mining yeah. to surface mining. They go mountaintop from- removal to tar sands. I mean, it's just, it's yeah. just like it's fracking. It's, it's all just like absolutely. As it, yes. as, it, as we approach things like peak coal and peak oil and peak coal growth, they go for like, what's the lowest common denominator? Just to, and just for like what happens in 2001, that, that's related more to sort of the forest work, right? And so yeah. like, who, yeah. who were you looking at? Who were y'all looking at? I mean, I, you know, I was looking at, I, my idea, I can only really speak for myself, was going after um, companies that are engaged in old growth old growth lumber, but there's a lot of, there. old growth logging, there's a lot of things to consider, like, you know, I mean, proximity to a city, um, is it a place we can actually get to? Is it, is it a fortress? Is it like, you know, accessible? Is it, are we able to do something there and not have it be super dangerous? Or, you know, I mean, we're talking that there's a level of danger, but nobody wanted to try to attack a building that would like somehow spread and, and harm people in any way. So a lot of different factors, there's the personnel like i was living in oregon so getting to southern oregon was a lot easier for me than getting to like the puget sound area so that played into it um i don't recall exactly how it was picked but we picked this place for its unspectacular nature i mean it did engage in helicopter logging and stuff but it was it was pretty unspectacular like it was it did overgrowth logging it wasn't well particularly well known it wasn't like uh i don't know boise cascade which others in the group had targeted prior to that um, or, you know, warehouse or GP or any of those well-known ones. Um, So I was essentially a lookout for the action. You know, I never went near the building. It was recon many different times because that, again, that was like part of the the process was making sure that people are not harmed and yourself and others. You know, I don't really, I know you're not asking, I don't really love to get into specifics, but I was a small action of maybe four or five people. I mean, everyone in this action is, was indicted for it. And, uh, you know, I was lookout and I was basically in like a little bit of a, like not a ravine, but like a, a pull out, a pull off almost. And I had a, a really good 
view of what I was supposed to watch. And, you know, I was supposed to radio if, if there were problems, it was over very quick. And then, you know, we were like 40 minutes away before we got, you know, the, the police scanner was, was calling the, the, the engines out. Um, cause it all, everything operates on a time delay in order to allow you to get out of there. Right. So. And a lot of this, a lot of this story is also documented in the, uh, in Marshall Curry's of a tree. It falls. is. Yeah, right. it is. in if, if a tree falls, I mean, there's a lot I've just never talked about because I don't see the point, um, you know, in, in like, I'm not, a, I'm not trying to do a how to, right. It's more just like what color is interesting to this, but um, you know, I guess my point is just, it's a thoughtful process. And I know people would find that laughable. Some people, at least not, not, not our friends, but um, you know, it's a, it's a very like, attenuated and, and thoughtful process because we're at our heart we're all a bunch of hippies that didn't want to hurt anyone um, and wanted to just have the maximum effect uh, stop the company not not have the people be unable to sleep or have PTSD but you know there unfortunately as I heard later there were you know people there are personal effects of, of these actions and they're they're not necessarily intended um, the government would say that's what makes you know this terrorism right it's like it feels like terrorism right but you know, no, you know, if you're not going after individuals and threatening them and this and that, I don't understand how that, that would really qualify. So that and, was one, you know, there was always a concern of mine that like, it was obvious to the, to the people that were investigating. It was like the same group of people, right? So we tried to switch it up a little bit. And I had the boneheaded idea in retrospect, like let's send these statements to like um, some like local forest defense groups, right? Cause they'll be supportive, even though there had been no real evidence that a lot of the groups were supportive. I mean, you know, I'm sure you guys know better than anyone that there's a lot of groups that like, they're really good on this issue, but like, they're pretty normal in terms of like their social politics or like their view towards the po police or law enforcement or social relationships or anything, right? Like they're great on trees or great on, you know, and that goes both ways. That's obviously social activists can be really horrendous on, on, on issues of, about eco ecology or whatever. And, you know, some of these people went in, they took that communique, they put it in a bag and they called the FBI you know, my mistake. Um, luckily enough, that never came of that. The goal was clearly not to stress these people out. We, we had this idea that like we would be building allies that like if we're, if we're attacking the company in your region that is like making your life hell because they're logging all over the place and they can't do that for a while, wouldn't that be perceived as a positive gesture? But it's, you know, in, in light of not being able to communicate that other than through a freaking communique, uh, and the superior lumber communique was not was not good. It was super ridiculous and over the top. And I wrote most of it, I believe. And you know, it's one of those cringe when I read it, which I have like once or twice in the last twenty years. I've cringed at the like trying to be fucking funny. Uh, I think we take Che Guevara's um, Bob just Bob just like is excited to hear this. Um, we take Chase uh, one too many Vietnams and turn it on its head and just, you know, make some kind of statement that the government insisted was a threat, not a threat, but, you know, I understand if you burn down someone's business, anything you say at that point sounds like a threat. Um, and it was right around, it was right around the new year, I believe it was right after the new year. Um, you know, wake up the next day you hear people in Eugene, Oregon talking about it. My, my roommates, for instance, and uh, having no fucking idea that it was you, it was pretty interesting. To, to be a fly on the wall for that. Um, the local anarchists, of course, were like, rah, rah, rah. The uh, single issue ecologists were like, uh, you know, wringing their hands. And it was, it kind of played out like that, you know? Are these actions what triggers 
Operation Backfire, or was that already in motion? Oh, no. Um, well, I don't know when the name Operation Backfire was technically attached to it. I feel like it was later, but there was an investigation from day one. And the reason, and this this is wild, I mean, the historians, you know, not that there's many that care about this issue, but there are a few. They will say the first the first ELF action is like the gluing of locks at a McDonald's in Cottage Grove, Oregon, 1996. And that may be true. The first real ELF action, the real by of note is, um, I believe it is two of them within a short period of time, and it's in 96. They're both claimed by EOF. One is the Oak Ridge Ranger Station, which is the ranger station attached to like the Willamette National Forest, and literally the group of people that were like log, getting ready to log Warner Creek. The, the Warner Creek is featured in that movie Pickaxe um, quite well. It was a successful campaign. It was a uh, Essentially, like, I don't know if it was a lightning strike or an, or an actual arson, but Warner Creek was burnt by fire and then started regenerating. And the Forest Service was like, oh, these are burnt sticks. We have to log it. We have to salvage it. I don't know if it was. I, actually, it was technically a salvage sale, you know, uh, approved by, you know, Clinton and the salvage rider. Um, and these people, you know, got on the road and dug through and, and just stopped it. Right. And so the ranger station in Oak Ridge. And then I think two to four days later, cars or a forest service trucks at Detroit ranger station. So this is like literally federal property is being attacked with the first actions. And I think early on, like if it wasn't Ron Wyden or some of the Congress people or senators, they were like banging the drum on getting federal involvement early on. I mean, the, the fact that it's a federal facility is what is what immediately implicates the feds in this, right? Um, either the ATF or the, the um, FBI, and then later the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which is their little coalition of all the different law enforcements. So I think right. very early on, it's a priority because the people that are complaining are politicians and government employees. Absolutely. So, and, and so as we're seeing, as back to 2001, where we're seeing ELF actions, I'm, I'm assuming that you thought that, that you knew that the FBI was investigating from day one, probably even before you did the action, y'all yeah. probably knew how active they were in watching environmental communities in the Northwest. Yeah, and absolutely. I'm, just, I'm wondering, you know, what what was your, um, you know, obviously you're operating with like a high level of like security consciousness, but like, how, was there a point where you thought they were getting close or where they were aware or they were like looking into like people in Eugene, that sort of thing? Mm. Yeah, um, you know, my my tactic was one that was like thoroughly disapproved by most of the people in my crew, which was um, I was fully immersed in the local scene. And I think part of it was I had this desire to do these actions. And I also had this desire to live in community with other anarchists and like be dealing with like all the other things I cared about, because I obviously care about more than than forest. Right. Um, I. I and mean, there was like a lot of anti-police sentiment in Eugene at the time. I was part of the, the local community there, like anarchist community in the Whitaker neighborhood. And I was involved in projects like Earth First and Green Anarchy and, and you know, things like that. So I, and I actually thought it helped me keep an eye on what was going on. And so that's how kind of how I sold it to people. Like, well, I was like, well, I'm not independently wealthy, right? So I have to have a job and I have to like, and, and I have this desire to like, I don't know, not like have relationships with people, whether, you know, like romantic, but also like, like literal friends, right? Like, like some of the people in my group were, were sort of cut off, you know, they just like cut off from the world. And I, I feel like cutting yourself off from the world cre can create really like, it led to some like, 
real big like theoretical mistakes and then like not even theoretical applied mistakes that we made because we were cut off we were like we're out of touch right so uh that was my thing right and so i was around all this stuff that was going on and there were some other people that lived in eugene and were sort of in the scene too and like it was it was quite interesting to see them and like not interact with them because you know it was just would be weird right um you know, unlike the actions in California, some of which were just done without a communicate, and some of which were done with like kind of jokey statements. Um, a lot of that was attributed to be like vandalism or kids or whatever. Like they, no one, they didn't really understand what was happening there because people have destroyed crops and done crop circles. That's not like really controversial. Um, the the actions in, in Eugene and the Northwest were definitely like perceived as such. Like these are, you know, and so they were investigating and there was a time where in Eugene, I mean, there was an active grand jury. The grand jury that eventually probably returned my indictment was active. It's maybe not the same people, but it was active and people in that community were being called to the grand jury. Um, I mean, there's there's a, a really ridiculous story where a personal conflict between a woman that I knew in the community and one of the people, the guy who ended up telling on all of us, Jacob Ferguson, a random conflict that they had basically resulted in him coming before their uh scope and then being seen as a person of interest in our case so they there were people including this person who got called before a grand jury testified you know probably you know i don't know what they testified because they're alive and you know grand jury testimony is secret but testified and then kind of refused to de debrief with with us and to me i i just felt like you know you're not like i didn't I never felt like I was a person of interest because they were like, you know, what, what happened is you had like people that were like shit talkers and like loud and like braggarts that were like getting implicated and stuff. And I'm actually loud and a shit talker, but somehow never really like, I never talked to people about like ELF shit. Like, Oh, that was a cool action. Like, and then like solicited them to say yes. And then uh, deep down, I got some kind of satisfaction. I was just very like low key about that kind of stuff. And I, you know, I don't, I don't know. Like the cop in infantry fall says they knew who I was, but I, I don't believe that for a second. I was just another young, late twenties anarchist guy doing my thing with, you know, hanging out at the info shop and food not bombs and that kind of stuff. You know. And so the sort of Jake Ferguson part of the story is actually pretty important to your story. So yeah. he has a conflict with this person, who yeah. I believe this is like ex partner. No, actually, but he oh, was oh. living, he was subletting from this person. Ah, and I, 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 it's been very hard to figure out exactly what it was that the conflict was about, but mm -hmm. he behaved poorly. I don't know. He wrote something. She just, I think, gave him the business, kicked him out. He like wrote on her window with like lipstick or something, took his stuff and left. Right. She called the cops. And then that just led this whole, and it would happen to, it literally was the same night of an action. That he had nothing to do with, but people in my crew did have something to do with. And I mean, this is just like that. I think it was like March 15th, you know, uh, 2001 or something. So they did right. this action in town, people that were not living in Eugene, piss pissing off all of us. And she called the cops on the day after the action. And the coincidence is what. And the important thing here is that they use this conflict. What comes out of it is that he becomes a confidential informant. Yeah, that's for at the end the, of the road. Yeah, for for the feds. But it's and, a long process because during this time, uh, you know, this woman goes to the grand jury. Her partner goes to the grand jury. 
I'm sure they were like, what's the deal with Jacob Ferguson? Is he, you know, they ask questions at grand juries that are like fishing, like, is he the kind of person that could do the action? Like, that's the kind of shit they say. I was dragged before a grand jury and held in contempt. And that's the kind of bullshit they say to you, you know? Um, and so what happened is Jacob in the early days resisted it. He didn't show up. He ripped up, famously ripped up a grand jury subpoena in a health food store and just walked away. For whatever reason, they let they just let it go. They just let it go for a while. And then I would say what happened is 9-11 happened. And when 9-11 happened and joint terrorism task forces were established between Oregon State Police, Eugene Police, uh, Portland Police, ATF, like all the different law enforcements, they were like, I mean, Oregon, like, it's like, what are we going to use this money on? So they, Oregon prosecutes two cases. They prosecute the Portland Seven, who are like Muslim men that tried to get into a training camp, but were rejected at the border. And they send these people to prison for this shit. And I was, did time with one guy. He had 20 years for this, for trying to get into a tra- Al-Qaeda training camp. I was just like, that's got to be less harmful than what I did. And how the hell did I, it's not like I wanted 20 years, but how the hell did he get 20 years? And then our case, and what happened is I believe the money, money essentially just buys staff time. And when you put enough of these heads on a case, they go back, they go, Ferguson always kind of, he was, he was something's funky. He gets the cops called on him the night of this Romania action. Something's wrong here, right? And they go back. And at this point, then uh, again, famously, he goes in, he meets with he meets with them with his attorney. They leave and they come back five seconds later with a proffer. He actually proffers to them. I can give you this. I can give you that. I can give you this. I can give you that. And the way it's told, and I have no way of knowing if this is true, is that Jacob's father did 30 years at Folsom State Prison. He had just gotten out as an old man. Jacob observed this, did not want to do the same to his kid. And because of, I believe, some tensions that he had with members of the group, it made it easy to just, you know, to do it, to save himself and turn in an enormous amount of people. And he wore a wiretap and he tried to get us all on wiretap. He definitely got me on wiretap talking with him about shit that I had done. Um, And, you know, the grand jury would indict a ham sandwich is, is the term that a New York lawyer or a New York judge once said, uh, you know, him saying, I did this with this guy and then giving details, you know, he didn't even know my name at the time um, is enough. And he, he went at one point, he went to his, I, I was really good about, um, you talked about security precautions. I had like one photo taken of me while, I mean, by accident, the whole time I was there and he actually found that photo and he gave it to them. And he was like, this guy's name is Jamie which was a nickname and they fucking figured it out and they figured it out because I was in New York and I gave a fucking interview with Rolling Stone magazine and they put them both together. And we're like, Oh, same person. This guy's name is Daniel McGowan actually. And there it goes. And that was, that was the end. So yeah. You are listening to the silky smooth sounds of the green and red podcast. And as always, we thank you for listening to us. Uh, We really appreciate it. And then, as always, uh, we would like to ask you to subscribe uh, to us on whatever format you listen to, whether it be on podcast or on our YouTube channel. Um, You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are on Linktree slash Green and Red Podcast. And we now also have postcards. And if you have a coffee house or a library or a bookstore, or someplace like that in your area that might be uh, a great spot to put some of these, just ask us and we will send them to you free of charge to spread the word about the Green and Red Podcast. 
And you can email us at greenredpodcast at gmail to get uh, a, a packet of your of your postcards. Uh, and then if you really like us, you can uh, donate. And, you know, we, we are very happy to get the donation and have the small base of small donors that we have. Uh, and so you can either become a patron at patreon.com backslash green red podcast, or you can make a one-time donation at green and red podcast.org and just hit that support button. It's also on the postcards. Uh, and so, uh, you know, thanks for listening and enjoy the show. So, so what happened is, you know, I, I ran into Jacob in Oregon when I was visiting a friend of mine at Oregon State Penitentiary, uh, actually an eco-activist named Jeff Lurs, who had at that time gotten 22 years in prison for uh, an arson. And I was in town and I ran into Jacob and little did I realize I was probably under like serious surveillance starting from the time I got there at Eugene Airport. I didn't know that. I didn't see anything. And then I ran, uh, he showed up at a conference that I was at in the northern tip of Manhattan, uh, an animal rights conference in 2005. And it was weird and he was weird and I felt something was weird and it had gnawed on me and gnawed at me and gnawed at me. And then I went to work one day, it was December 7th, 2005. And I was like helping with like holiday cards and I'm getting ready to go. I have the holiday cards in my hand and I stand up and there's these two guys in the entrance to my cube and they say my name and uh, they're like, they literally close the gap in like a second and I'm handcuffed and they literally say to me, you're going back to Oregon, like law and order style. And I, I was like, oh gosh. And that, that sort of began the, the legal process. So you didn't, I, have any, you didn't have any vibe about it in the intervening period? Like I had a going, going fucking, to the underground or anything like that? I, or? No, but I kept thinking to myself, um, God, it was fucking weird to run into him. Like, and he was weird. And he said some stuff that was like red flags. It's, it's actually kind of funny. I was going on like days, pretty much days of like no sleep. I was battling insomnia. And I went to this conference. I had to get up there at like 9 a.m. It's at 189th Street. I lived in Brooklyn. It took me ages. And I remember getting up there really early. I had heavy bags. And I was tabling all day for, for Jeff Lurs. And uh, he came up to me. And I remember just feeling like, this is too fucking weird, man. And I don't know if it was social grace that or some kind of social bullshit that prevented me from just pretending I didn't know him, which is probably what I should have done. I would have been indicted, but at least I could have told myself, well, you weren't an idiot. And we went for a walk. He mentioned a few sketchy things. I played dumb. Didn't matter at that point because they were there. And so, you know, they got their photos and, you know, he tried to he actually brought up that he had run into a a guy that I do know, which I didn't let on that I knew. And I asked that guy later and he was like, I don't know who you're talking about. And I was like, wow. And it, you know, so there was some dread. I remember watching the Weather Underground documentary and there were people in there that were in prison. And I remember just feeling kind of like I wanted to throw up, you know, was your, was uh, your phone tapped or were they like looking at your emails? or I don't know. Presumably. Yeah. I mean, this is post Patriot Act. So they had a lot of, as soon as they said the word terrorism, it was pretty easy. In discovery, all I was able to find was uh, what they called uh, trace. Uh, what are they called? Um, I can't remember the name. It's a funny term. Key trace or key key something. It's when they um they can get a record of any number any numbers that call any number. So any number that calls this one house, they had a record of that. But I never saw phone transcripts. I mean, that is the that's the juicy discovery that you only get right before you go to trial. It's called Brady material. And they, they love to hold that shit back. Um, so I, they're not really, they weren't very keen about sharing that. A lot of the discovery I got from the lawyers from the other side was just bullshit, 
like there'd be like a gem in there, but it'd be in a page of like a thousand pages. And I religiously went through it. So I would be like, oh, that's the smoking gun. But for the most part, you didn't know. I was never able to figure out if I was phone tapped. I was never able to figure out um, if my email was, was fucked with. Like he found me. But then again, I also, if he was following my social media, I was saying I'm going to grassroots animal rights conference. So I wasn't living necessarily underground. I was living a normal life with this fucking huge secret. And so when, after you get arrested, what are you charged with exactly? So I'm arrested. They bring me to court in Brooklyn. They house me, um, but they weren't ready for me. So my arraignment was going to be the next day. I got a, 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 I gave the name of a lawyer that had represented my friend. He came to see me at MCC New York, uh, the, the prison that uh, Jeffrey, Jeff Epstein killed himself in. It's closed now. Um, and I went into court the next day and they told me, you know, what I was being charged with arson. It was in the New York Times. Um, I figured out who, you know, that it must have been Jacob. We put um, a cop on the stand to just get more information about where, like, how were they actually going to grab me in New York and bring me back to Oregon um, to remove me from that federal district? The local judge had no idea. She didn't sign anything. The warrant was signed in Oregon. Patriot Act allowed them to come get me. And, uh, you know, I, I knew what it was, but I was, I had no idea, you know, I knew it was going to be arson. Um, it ended up being for two, two arsons it was arson counts, uh, related to every vehicle at the, at the place that I, I helped burn down. So it was like 15 counts of that. And it was conspiracy to commit arson. And there is no terrorism charge. Terrorism, terrorism, federal crime of terrorism is an enhancement that is put on you later. I presumed that it was going to happen because I had been paying attention to the wise use movement and the government's rhetoric. And they had already, after 9-11, been really ratcheting up the idea of domestic terrorism. Um, I believe it was Don Young, the Alaskan uh, senator or representative on September 12th, said, these could have been those eco-terrorists. And he literally said that in Congress when they were all going crazy and baying at the moon. And, you know, when I saw this week, it it got on an airplane. Yeah, that's a shame. May, um, may he rest. May he rest in distress. <laughs> horrible person. I mean, a senator from Alaska. I mean, are you just not the biggest rab- robber baron? Like just like so. sucking the oil out. I mean, just what a horrible person. I think he was the Congress. The congressman. Congress. Yeah. Okay. Well, he he was the longest serving Republican congressman, maybe ever. Yeah. He was he was dreadful, but you know, yeah, really, uh, yeah, really when horrible. I saw that rhetoric, yeah. I was like, there was a certain part of me that was like, wow, my goose is cooked. You know, like this. Yeah. This is fucked, right? I thought of the money thing right away when I heard about when we had a joint terrorism task force in New York and actually on the wiretap with Jacob, they read this part in court and, you know, without affect, it really comes, makes me look like an a-hole. I said something like, he was like, oh, you're living in New York. Why? I was like, well, you know, my family's from there and, you know, they only care about Arab terrorists here. And I say it like <laughs> joking, but when you read it, you're just yeah. like, so I'm like in prison years later having to, you know, explain to my Arab friends, like, you know, I was fucking joking. Right. And they would like be mock outraged. How dare you call, you know, anyhow, my point is like, you know, I, I did at a certain point, look at it. Like they don't give a fuck about me. They don't take this shit seriously. ELF. They look at that as like child's play. It's not, it's not putting a plane into a building. Right. I mean, it's like, anyhow. Well, there's, um, I think a bureaucratic imperative too. People have to justify their jobs. And we, we oh. saw this out because so much money was spent and so many agencies Absolutely. were created. And people, you know, like they have to go searching for for stuff to do. They to had to find people, Lackawanna, find people. Uh, Lodi, yeah. California. They just create, yeah. they find these terrorism cases based yeah. on one rat going, yeah, I think that guy is, uh, 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 I mean, just at one point they had said that 
the number two in Al Qaeda lived in Lodi. I mean, that's yeah. just like, like what? I follow the mob and you see a lot of that where they'll get some like kind of small town gangster, you know, and some, you know, and they'll, they'll turn him into the Godfather. Just yeah, absolutely. They have to justify totally you know, justify their paychecks mm-hmm. and their appropriations. So. so you, you were sentenced to seven years. How much did you serve the full seven years? Um, no, in the federal system, you get good time. And uh, even though they were shortchanging us at the time, I ended up doing about six years in prison. Uh, my sentence was six years uh, after the good good time credit. And the good time is just like you don't get in trouble and you they just give you this 48 days at the time, 48 days a year. Good time. Um, and then I did six months at the halfway house. So I did five and a half years in prison, six years in the halfway house. Most of the time I spent in prison was in these communication management units, which ironically I knew about because preparing for sentencing, one of the things we 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 actually, excuse me, not sentencing, we had a huge hearing about the terrorism enhancement. And one of the arguments was, was using this Washington Post article to say, if you call him a terrorist, he's going to end up at this unit that's essentially like non-contact visits and phone calls are ta- you know listened to and restricted. And it's a small, tiny group of people kept away from everyone else. And we argued that, the judge said, sorry, you guys have to argue this case by case. I got the terrorism enhancement. I went to a mainline. And that just pr- came. That just came down to sentencing, right? The, the judge give that, or yeah, the judge. The judge gave that. It's not found by a jury. Um, I chose to not appeal it, but one of my co-defendants did. It was affirmed by the higher court, which is uh, in the legal world what's known as creating bad law, so creating bad precedent. I didn't think I was. I don't want to say I was satisfied with seven years, but having. What I'll, what I'll say about the, the sentence is what I was facing in the beginning is outrageous. It was life, life plus some insane amount of time. And the reason is I was charged with arson and conspiracy, but I was also charged with this thing called use of a destructive device, 924C. It's just, um, it's, a, it's mostly a gun charge or an explosive charge. But when you say the word terrorism in a t- with a terrorist crime, that first charge is a mandatory 30 years and the second one is mandatory life. So if I was found guilty, if I went to trial where the jury cannot know about the consequences of the of the the sentence, right? And they found me guilty thinking I'm gonna get slapped on the wrist or five, 10 years, I go to have mandatory life. So like seven, going into sentence and being allowed to argue for five, and the government argued for 10, and I got seven, was like, okay. So I I, I didn't appeal it, even though I I obviously had great issue with the terrorism enhancement, but I had seen the writing on the wall that like all these attempts to get rid of the the, the higher courts were just smacking it down. So, you know, I, I just learned to live with the, with the stupid label. Um, so I did five and a half years in, like I said, at most of at the CMU. I did uh, 26 months at Marion CMU. And then I, I was put in general population and I was on uh, the call with, with a friend. And I said something about, well, if the lawyer wants me to see that article, she'll send it to me. And that got construed that I was telling the person to send me something through legal mail. And then they, they just broke me off right away put me right back in the other CMU and I did the other 21 months before I was released in 2012. So, so you did the almost the entire time in the CMU? Yeah, like 48 out of 55, probably. I did a little time in Brooklyn, a little time in transit, time at the county jail when I was held in contempt of court, and then seven months at Sandstone, which is a, in, uh, it's actually near where Jessica Resnicek is. It's in north Northeast Minnesota. And the, being in the communication management unit, I mean, I've, I've read stories, I've read Will Potter's Green is the New Red, mm-hmm. which talks about mm-hmm. your experience there. For sure. But can you just 
tell us a little bit about that about that briefly? Sure. So I, I only did a little bit of time in general population. And, and this is where Daniel, for folks listening in, this is where Daniel Hale is being currently held. Yeah, that's right. Talked about on the show before. Totally. So yeah, I uh, you know I had been in general population. I had known that like you know uh, you have a controlled movement every hour. You have to get to where you're going. But like you go to the library, you go to the dentist, you go to the doctor, you go to the track. I played pickleball. I did karaoke. I played floor hockey. I mean, it's just a totally different world. You know, you go to the visiting. You have contact visits. You can hug your friends, have an ice cream bar, whatever. And then I go to the CMU, and I had known of the CMU's existence. So as soon as I'm put in transit. They tell you, uh, I'm like, where am I going, man? I've only been here seven months. Out of nowhere, I get transferred. Oh, man, you're going to Marion. And I'm thinking, Marion? I'm starting to think, like, Marion used to be the Supermax. I was like, and he's like, no, you're going to that new unit. And I was just like, oh, my God. And so the dread. No, it's actually uh, not Marion, Ohio. uh, Marion, Illinois. It's the southern tip of. There is a Marion. Yeah, there is. Yeah, and there's a prison there, too. Um. But uh, yeah, it's the yeah, southern tip of, yeah, of, from Ohio. Yeah. of Illinois. It's uh, it is like, I mean, for instance, the guards root for the Rams. They don't root for the Bears. That's how south it is, you know, like mm-hmm. and also the Bears, like they're all racist. So like Chicago is like scary. Right. So they're, they identify more with St. Louis or Paducah, Kentucky. That's how it's just like the yeah. triangle. Um, so I show up there and there's a, a fr- I know a friend of mine is there. This guy, Andy Stepanian, he's uh, Jake Conroy's co-defendant from from New York City. And so that was good, just knowing like Andy's here. But like, there's like 18 dudes there. We occupy one range. The phone you you are not able to use like, at a normal institution. You can use the phone 300 minutes a month, so in 15 minute increments, right? Pay for it, but it's uh, it's not that bad. Um, you can call whenever whenever you can, whenever you are yourself. You can just go and, and call here. Uh, you have to schedule it. There was like a clipboard, and you used to have to write like your. Your, your friend's information, your family's information on that clipboard, which would just sit there. It was like very sketchy. And uh, you had to do it like a week in advance. So if you fucked up and like were sick and didn't go out there to like schedule your call, you just didn't get a call that week. We found out later why that was, and I'll, I'll get into it. Um, the con- the visits were horrendous. They were like, you went from having like a, you know, playing Uno, eating eating Snickers and hanging out with, you know, taking photo- photos, like old style Polaroids to like, Basically at Marion, I remember going in this in this unit or in this vision booth and putting my arms like this and touching the wall. And then it was through glass with like a phone. And the reason this was all like that, the reason the phone call was a week in advance, the reason is because literally they have an agency in Virginia, West Martinsburg, Virginia, listening. Like you have intelligence analysts that are set up to listen to you, right? And so it's it's outrageous. Um, and then the other thing is that everything you do in that is in that unit. So like we were we were uh, we had like a tiny yard with a bunch of razor wire and cages, and we essentially lived in what was the former segregation unit at Marion. So it's like not designed for long term habitation. We had bars. Bars are really tough because you hear everything on your range. It's echoing. It's very hot. It's, you know, it's cold in the winter. It's hot in the summer. I mean, it's just a miserable place. I went there. I had a serious sense of dread. I was claustrophobic. I mean, not like badly so, but enough that I was like, Jesus, there's nowhere to go. And occasionally, like on like July 4th and stuff, you'd hear the yard. And it was just like, wow, like you'd hear, you know, people get really hyped for like just essentially the burger and fries, right? It's not the the holiday. And you would just hear the games and people playing. And you're just in this, like, I remember walking around this like tiny yard the handball wall is like is like made out of wood so it thumps every time a ball goes off it the basketball cage is tiny you're hitting like the roof every time you shoot with an arc 
it was a miserable place. And I, you know, my goal was like, let's shut this fucking place down. Let's get out of here. Um, I got sent there without a hearing because they say, oh, it's a general population unit. But no, it's not. It's a complete punishment unit. It's a they want to bury you there. And so they take people who had access to the media like myself, um, mostly through just connections or just being in New York and having access. And they just want to bury you. So we were a bunch of people with high profile cases. Some of the people in my in my the unit had written books and were, you know, professors and really interesting group of people, um, multinational, multi-generational. And they stuck us there. And there was mostly Muslim men. And then there were some randos, like one older Nazi, uh, you know, some guy from Louisiana who was considered like a called the Dixie Mafia. Uh, you had Andy, you know, like a animal rights activist. You had a, a crazy uh, American Indian uh, native man who was threatened the, the court of appeals with a bomb. You had uh, just a random, uh, you know, had a, you had like a random sex offender. You had this like religious, you know, uh, fundamentalist dude. It was just a wild group of people and very interesting place to do time. I'm kind of curious about what your support looked like on the outside. Like we, you know, to move in mm-hmm. pl- radical political spaces in particular, you see a lot about prisoner support, anarchist political yeah. support, earth liberation, political prisoner mm-hmm. support. Just wonder if you could like comment on that. Yeah, sure. My support was amazing. It was, we essentially, uh, the reason it was good, it was, it's just like built on what had come before. And so like, we're just lucky to have a, a whole bunch of former political prisoners and a, a lot of people that have done time in New York. And so like, one of my quests was like, I talked to all pretty much all of them before I went in to try to figure out like how to do my time. But we were like learning from people that came before us. I was involved in prisoner support, but like getting indicted, it just like the people around me, um, my, my close group of friends and comrades just like really up their game. I mean, we did everything really big, you know, like we sold like 3000 t-shirts like that. Those, those, that t-shirt money. And we had an amazing design. Um, so everything we did was like big. It was just like, we, we did an art show at ABC No Rio. Um, my friends raised like $30,000 in like a day. They got like, um, I mean, Banksy donated art. It was, it was Eric Drucker, Borf. I mean, it was all these amazing, like this was before Just Seeds existed. It was uh, groups that were, you know, the same people around making beautiful art. But, um, you know, we just like, they were they were amazing honestly from the time i was on house arrest my friends would come see me all the time they'd bring me food they'd bring me to court they'd show up for court they'd wear court clothes like real court clothes look try to like you know look good and whatever normal so the judge wasn't freaking out and um you know i had places to stay when i was out in oregon um they i mean just raised an enormous amount of money i was able to pay my lawyers i mean not pay all of it but you know just contribute money um Man, it's it's hard to say, but my support was amazing. When I was inside, I got books whenever I wanted. They spoiled me with money on my commissary. When, and I, my way of doing it was like, I want to maximize everything I get. I want to be able to like help as many people as I can. So all my books were like donated or loaned around. I I helped out my co-defendants with commissaries. Some of them didn't have the, the same level of access to the, to the benefit money. Um, I mean, I just did, did whatever I can to help people, um, realizing that I was just like super lucky to receive this this so, and oh. you know no it's okay of everyone in your crew were you kind of singled out and got the the most severe punishment no that's what's weird i didn't i was like a medium in the conspiracy there were people that were engaged in um you know so like we like to s- compare it by splitting down the people who cooperated and the people who didn't cooperate right yeah. and so like the person on the other side the person that cooperated um 
I got 84 months and she got 48. So they all got like a benefit to like telling, you know, in this case, like 33 months, right? But there were some people, including, well, Jacob definitely got slapped on the wrist. He got like probation. He got like five years probation. And he was involved in a lot of major actions and sort of like one of the founders, right? So like he was super involved, but there were like two or three people who got like 13 to 15 year sentences. I mean, I was involved in two actions and I got, you know, two arsons and I got, uh, I got seven years, but there were people that were involved in like 10 to 12 and they got like 13 years. So there's, you know, the, they definitely, these people that cooperated got, a, got a bit of a benefit for, for selling us out. And, um, you know, like I said, like the person on the other side, I didn't get a major role enhancement, which is just another way they can fuck you at sentencing. Um, but my co-defendant who had the same exact behavior, so to speak, she got a minimum role enhancement, which was, I thought just very gendered and weird. Cause this is not a person that was just like, they tried to um, at sentence and make it look like the women involved were like along for the ride. And it is completely not true. <laughs> I mean, like the, everyone in our group, like, nobody was anybody's girlfriend. Like, these were all like self-actualized people, adults and like fully involved. But, you know, when the time came, it's the same thing as pointing the finger. People will, will say anything to get out of trouble, including, you know, blaming shit on my dead co-defendant, my co-defendant who killed himself. That's a really easy thing to do. You know, and it was done by some some of the rats in my case. Is super fucking tacky. Um, so, you know, um, yeah. I'm a bit curious kind of hearing all of this and maybe I'd like to hear a little bit about how you feel about all the, about the actions now, just in retrospect in, in 2022. I mean, it's, it's hard to, I'm a really critical person and probably like most critical people or should be a critical myself more than anything. So like, I, I like to see them in context of like where we were at the time and the issues that we're still facing. And so morally speaking, I don't see a problem with it. I'm, I'm certainly happy that nobody was ever harmed. I mean, the only person that was ever harmed, um, in, in any of these actions, it was some, I believe somebody burnt their eyebrows off accidentally. And it was one of us. So, you know, I'm really glad that that happened, but we live in a world where there's danger. So I, I don't think we can ever, you know, and we live like very cloistered lives, right? In America for the most part, right? Like we're not like dealing with like fucking horrible situations. I mean, even even prison is like way different than outside, you know? And so I, I, I don't know, like there's a certain part of me that's like, well, you know, the world can be dangerous and you do your best in keep, keeping yourself and your loved ones safe. And obviously like, I don't want, I don't want people to be, they want people to be harmed. I mean, if we wanted to like hurt people, you would have hurt people. I mean, this is like, it's, it was not like we were not able to, and there were, you know, obviously like, you know, theoretical discussions about all kinds of different tactics, but um, you know, so I have a mixed bag. I, I, I like to, at some point, you know, it's 20 years later and I went from every single person I knew in my life knowing about this and even be recognized by strangers randomly. Like I've had some funny moments where people have read my name and been like, oh, I saw a film about you. And it's super like, you know, I just want to, you know, I'm not a very shy person, but boy, that gets me every time I'm like, oh my God. Um, but I like to, I, I like to think that history will think kindlier, kinder of us than the judge or than the FBI. I mean, I don't know, like faced with like what we're dealing with and what we were dealing with, which is the same thing, but maybe not as bad what are you supposed to do to, to combat this? You know, like this is like even making contact with you, Scott, I realized that I, oh, I'm now remembering and dealing with the idea of what the fuck are you doing with, in this world? Like, how, what are you doing to, 
to to fight climate change or the ecological collapse like and uh it's a tough one for me honestly i feel you know fairly distraught does it make you feel when you see like the the guys on january 6th who stormed the Capitol and they're getting like three four years you know? oh i mean it's hilarious they whine you know, like crazy of, we're, you we're, know we're, like we're trying to guilt yeah they're they're snowflakes right but yeah they whine like crazy to, like, guillotine the vice president that, yeah yeah. They're well, yeah. I think they're super soft, and I think it kind of like is really connected to their ideology, which is like snow, their ideology is like super snowflake, it's super sensitive, uh, unable yeah. to deal with like the changing world we live in, and like, oh, the white man is not, you know, like, oh, paramount. It's like, well, that's because that's oppression, yeah. you know, like, so I don't know. Yeah. Watching the way <laughs> they act inside is horrific. Um, and I've been researching yeah. it a lot and finding out that unfortunately, a lot of these fools. Um, not the January 6th people yet, but a lot of the right-wing people are making their way into the CMUs, which is obviously an issue that concerns me. Um, but what will happen is these January 6th people, they'll go into general population prison, and then they'll take pictures with swastikas, and the counter-terrorist people will break them off and send them to the CMU. I mean, it's sort of like like yeah. what I see happening. Uh, one last thing, because I know we're sure. getting close here, um, and it's really kind of more... At the, at the beginning, one of the first things you said where you talked about um, I think, I don't know if it was about the left generically, but how you kind of dealt more prioritized tactics over strategy and how we're yeah. really good at strategy. And this is something that I know Scott and I have talked about a lot. The left is kind of uh, sometimes immune to strategic, you know, mm -hmm. kind of considerations. I just, you know, you want to kind of talk a little bit about that more just yeah. kind of as an organizer, as an activist. Sure. sure. It, it doesn't have to be specific to what you did. Yeah, no, no. I mean, it's, you know, the, the idea that we were getting addicted to the bang so to speak, and the instant uh, instant stuff um, really took over. It really took over, and we started. There was there was aspects of our group that were quite adventuristic, and it's interesting because at the time, like you know, my role in 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 the group was researcher, and and like wordsmith, so to speak. And I have a strong personality, and I was able to, as a newer person, shift the focus onto topic areas. So I was really good at that. But I felt I, I the way to do it is what do we want? How do we get there? Not what are we going to do about it? Then what? I mean, we were backwards, right? And and this is a group of people. Like there was a small core of us that were like super hardcore, like students of past movements. So like I, at one point. One of the people in my group went to Evergreen. I remember there was a room in the house that just had like a hundred books taken out from the library. And we were just air, red brigades, like red army faction, direct action. I mean, just black Panthers, everything we can find to, to be like, you know, we don't want to recreate some of the mistakes. So like, how can we learn from that? So on some levels we were really good. We didn't go down some really predictable paths. Like let's rob banks, you know, like that could, that could be a really a disaster for like a, a group like us. It could have ended in one action, right? Yeah. Someone gets killed and whatever, but we were so bad in terms yeah. of like, yeah. well, if we want to stop old growth logging, and if we want to stop these things, how can we, we were literally like, well, if we put them out of commission, they can't log. It's like, well, okay, true. But like, how hard is it to put a group out of commission? I mean, it's like, like Jake has talked about with Shaq. Eventually, the U.S. government stepped in to to prop up Huntington, right? Like, we didn't get to that point. We didn't get to that point with with logging. We didn't get to that point with GMO stuff, right? So, um, and some of what we did backfired in that, like, you know, we were a little, we had a little element of prankiness, a little, you know, 
sar sarcasm in some of the things we did. And I don't know if that served us as well. I don't know if it served our, our goals. And I think if you would have asked us all separately, what was your strategy? What, what's your goal here? We might have had different answers, which is a shame because that should have been. And we met a lot. It's not like we didn't meet. We had these little sessions, these skill shares, and the government called a book club, but nobody called it that. And um, we should have really been talking about what do we want to do in this year and where can we get if we really stretch? We wanted to get more people involved, yet some of the things we did push people away. Um, making ourselves, like releasing a highly technical manual about how to do these actions, I think allowed people to go, oh, they got it covered. Look how technical these people are. Like, I'm not technical, right? Like, I, I probably made devices that didn't work. So, like, there was room for people that were not technically involved. But if you saw that device, that manual, you'd been like, this is this is beyond me. Right. Um, and so like we did, we did things that were against our own interest and disconnected from the movement and got for security reasons were disconnected. And it, it ended up with us making some bad decisions, you know, S security wise, but also really just like trusting the wrong people for expediency. Like I trusted a few people because I wanted this shit to happen and in order to do so, I had to trust this person. And even though I had like little ding-dongs going off in my brains, that's problematic. I mean, easy to, set, easy to say now, easy to say in 2005. But when you're in the business, it is messy. I mean, any kind of organizing is messy, right? Like we're humans, we make mistakes. Sometimes we, we take shortcuts. And some of what we did was taking shortcuts. Like we could have slowed down dramatically and been much more effective, you know, but then again, I don't know, easy. I don't, I don't blast the, the path, right. It is what it is. And I am here now. Right. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to kill myself. I said some, I did some dumb, dumb things about getting wiretapped. And for years it would, I would think about it and I'd feel my ears go red. And at this point I've like tried to just forgive myself and be like, you know what, dude, you were doing your best. Like, let's just calm down. Like I'd rather make the mistake than not try and not make any mistakes. Right. So um, my, well, I think, my, oh, go ahead, Bob. no, it's just kind of my last comment really, um, is that like, I think like Jake, who's one of my favorite people and you have a lot, you know, even if you're not into, you know, your issue is an animal <clears throat> rights or, or, uh, logging or old growth forest or whatever you do, you know, like there's, there's a lot to learn from the kinds of experiences and organizing, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you're, you're dealing with that, that yeah. Jake and you, and, and, sure. you know, I, I, I hope that, uh, people understand that, that, you know, they may not really care yeah. even about your, yeah, issue, that's but true. there's a lot there. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do a little bit of talking to classes and stuff. I'm going to be speaking yeah. to some high school students soon. It's always a little scary when oh, I'm awesome. talking to minors. I don't want to like be perceived as like rah, rah and anything. I also don't want to poo poo them because people used to do that shit to me. And I was like, relax, old man. That old man was yeah. like 30 at the time, but you know, I was like, you know, yeah. the kids are going to do what they're going to do. Right. And let's hope they have the answers, yeah. uh, better answers than we did. You know? Yeah. My, my only last question is if you want to talk a little bit about what your, what some of your work looks like now. Oh yeah, totally. So um, obviously speaking to high school kids, which is great. Yeah. So I, I'm doing a little speaking. I like, um, I don't know if it's the spring, like everyone's waking up, but I, I did a webinar with CLDC last night uh, talking about supporting people in prison and when, when they get out. And so I, I'm on the board of advisors of the Civil Liberties Defense Center. Uh, it's run by a good friend of mine, Lauren Regan, who is one of the only people uh, in any organization to support us when we fell. 
the list of people who would not say a word to us or, you know, is, is, is very long. And Lauren was not one of those people. And so I do what I can to help CLDC. They were representing my friend, Eric King, who was just found guilty, or excuse me, found not guilty at a at trial uh, by a jury, no less, uh, for assaulting a federal uh, lieutenant in the BOP. So I, I was working on Eric King's campaign since about 2016. Uh, I also locally work with New York City Books Through Bars. We send we send books to people in prison in, in about 40 different states. I'm on their board and I, I am a volunteer. Um, I work with the Anarchist Black Cross Federation uh, and mostly help raise money for their what's called their war chest program, which does uh, sends small stipends of like $50 a month to a list of about 20 different political prisoners. Uh, most of the people have been in for decades and either their families are long gone or, you know, they they have no means to, to even buy commissary. And so I work on that. Uh, I am on the Certain Days Collective, which creates uh, and produces an annual calendar. Um, it's a like a calendar with 12 pieces of art and original artwork centered around a theme. Um, the subtitle of the calendar is called Freedom for Political Prisoners. And it was started by three political prisoners in New York State about 20 years ago, um, all three of whom are out right now, which is amazing. And um, I'm trying to think what else. So I also work on uh, the board of advisors of the Coalition for Civil Freedoms, which are is a group that works with Muslim people who are entrapped by the U.S. government, uh, many of whom I did time with at the CMUs. And so I offer sort of expertise or guidance in their work. Um, the most interesting thing I've been working on lately, though, is this kind of random thing that happens, which uh, is essentially what you could call consulting, but it's not, I don't, have any kind of title, people will reach out to me and go, hey, my friend was arrested for blank in blank, and I know that you've been through this. Can you help? And so I will often help a person accused of a crime or a person getting ready to go into prison, especially if it's federal prison. And then I connect them to a lot of other people that have done time. So like, for instance, there is a person that's going to be going into prison next week. Um, they're going to maintain a little bit of low profile. So unfortunately, I can't say much more than that, but I am connecting this person with my co-defendant, hopefully, who did time at the prison that they're going to be at, right? So I do that. I help set up uh, defense committees. Uh, I've been working a little bit with Daniel Hale support people right before he went in when he was in jail. Um, and then I kind of gathered he was going to be going to the CMU and I kind of flagged that for them. And now he is at the CMU and it is a depressing place. And so Daniel, you know, Daniel Hale can definitely use some support. He has uh, like probably close to three or four years left on his sentence. Um, the other last thing bit I did is I did a little of this with uh, Jessica Resnicek personally when she, she was out on bond, like I was. It's a very oh, okay. rare thing to be out on bond. And, uh, you know, um, I have connections with our, her legal team and I asked to kind of be put in touch with her because I knew she was going to go to federal prison. She got eight years. It's longer than I got. It's, uh, I think, a kind of drastic sentence. She also has a federal crime of terrorism enhancement, which is appalling. She is held at Wasika, which is a low security women's prison, really quite close to Sandstone. It's uh, the existence is when she's which, told me which about state it. Is that? Which state That's is that? Minnesota. So yeah, she is there. She's at a low security prison. Um, you know, it just under COVID federal prison sounds a lot worse. There's a lot of lockdowns. Um, some of the people I support like Jessica or Daniel Baker, Baker, excuse me. He's a, uh, he's a, uh, anti-fascist that was accused of threatening right-wing people in, in Tallahassee. He's at FCI Memphis. They're on constant lockdown over and over and over, you know, throwing his books out and things like that. So um, I would say like 
the consulting really is just like a more formal way of paying it forward of like trying to turn these lemons that, you know, I'm not a victim in this situation. I mean, I am a, I was a partisan. I wasn't entrapped. I mean, unfortunately I was wiretapped. I could have avoided that had I uh, been a little more thoughtful, but uh, you know, I'm not, I went through the system. It has greatly affected me. I struggle with my own like personal uh, mental health issues from that and, and prior to that. And so uh, I do, I'm just doing what I can to turn those lemons into lemonade. And, you know, I see it as a act of solidarity, which is very in line with my politics, but also just like trying to be a good person. I essentially am just like the same person I was when I was like five years old and I was like a little do good or like trying to save cats on the street. But like, you know, obviously my friends are not cats. My comrades are not cats, but um, you know, I'm just trying to do my best to like, you know, if you're the recipient of this like amazing solidarity and mutual aid, like how can you not like just really try to, to make the same for other people, you know? So. Bob, did you have some? Yeah, I just, no, thanks. It's a, it's a, an amazing no, story. I appreciate, and I, I appreciate you talking with us. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thanks for coming on and joining us yeah. and telling us your story. Folks, you've been listening to the silky smooth sounds of Daniel McGowan talking about. <laughs> Shit cracks me up. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. talking about uh, his experience as part of the Earth Liberation Front and as a political prisoner and work he's doing now. Uh, a very important story. Much appreciation for you coming on. Thank you. Uh, this is the Green and Red podcast. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. We're Smash quickly it. growing. We're growing. We're growing fast. I understand um, you could get postcards somehow too, right? Yeah, if you want a, um, a postcard, you can uh, send an email to Green and Red Podcast, Green Red Podcast at Gmail and send us your address and a number. We're running, we're running low, so we may be ordering some yeah, more. Yeah, put them out at bookstores and dispensaries and libraries and friendly bars yep. and places like that. And thanks to all the people out there who've already been doing it. We actually have to send a bunch out and give it a bunch out to be passed around. Yeah. Um, and if you want to help fund the postcards, you can go to greenredpodcast.org and hit support and make a one-time donation, or you can become a patron at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast. And basically to join the Green and Red crew, you just need to donate $3 a month, which is less than the cost of a beer, particularly yeah. if you live in Brooklyn or San Francisco <laughs> or the Montrose in Houston, yeah, yeah. pretty much anywhere. Also, if you're on Facebook, check out uh, Green Red uh, Green and Red page and Scott's page because he is doing a fundraiser for both his environmental work and for uh, our media work. So you can also donate that way to Scott's birthday fundraiser. Yep. Yeah. Scott's gonna, I think you're turning 40 this year, right? Yeah, I'm 35. <laughs> 35. Okay. Yeah. Right, you, you can look find me at, uh, can I get my shout out? You can yeah. find me at the Tiny course, Raccoon on Twitter. So it's the tiny raccoon and that's on Twitter. And you can find me also one of my projects, certain days.org. And uh, yeah, you can find from there. I post, well, I tweet a lot about prisoner stuff. Obviously, We'll, we'll put that in the show notes too. Thank we'll you. put it in the show notes too. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Uh, Thanks. Folks, folks, it's been great talking, great talking with you, Daniel. Um, you. Ev- everyone else out there make a lot of trouble and misbehave. And we'll talk to you again soon.